0: This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, October 12, 2022, on your public radio station, KUAF 91.3. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Callums. The Arkansas Advanced Energy Association is meeting today in Little Rock at the Clinton Presidential Center. The gathering is billed as the state's largest for advanced energy interests, including electric vehicles, Solar power and more. Later this hour, we'll learn about how the new UAMS Office of Community Health and Research Building in Springdale will assist the office in its work with health research and community involvement. We'll also spend some time with the creative crew behind Legally Blonde. The national tour for the musical begins at Walton Arts Center this weekend. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore will explain how the show prepared for the tour while at Walton Arts Center. We'll start this Wednesday with a new study from Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families. The report shows that teenage pregnancy in the state is nearly double the national rate at 28 per 1,000 teens. That's tied with Mississippi for the highest in the United States. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth spoke with Laura Kellums, the Northwest Arkansas Director for Arkansas Advocates, to get a better understanding of what the report shows.
1: So, Laura, can you just go ahead and kind of break down the report that Arkansas Advocates released, what the numbers say when it comes to teen birth in Arkansas, and maybe how that's changed over the past couple of years?
2: Sure. Um, You know, one of the reasons we wanted to um, dig into this issue a little bit more is because Arkansas has had the highest teen birth rate in the country for about a decade, and we've been at the bottom for even longer than that. Um, and so this year, we are still tied um, with Mississippi uh, t- for the highest teen birth rate in the country. And so we wanted to look not only at the reasons for this, but also some of the solutions that we can offer uh, for ways to turn this around.
1: One of the the main things that sort of stood out to me in the report was um, contraceptives um, and that you know, that's kind of the main factor for teens in Arkansas is that an alarming number of them don't use contraceptives compared to other, you know, national numbers. So why, why do we think that is? Why are teens not using contraception in Arkansas?
2: We have the highest teen birth rate in the country, but our teens aren't different in their sexual behavior. So their uh, behavior is not different, but what is different is their lack of access. To the most effective forms of birth control and also their inconsistent use of birth control. Uh, to us, that, that points to some really obvious solutions, and that is increased access to the most effective forms of contraception and also sex education. Those are the two big things that stand out. If, if our teens aren't using birth control as much as they do in other states, that's for two big reasons. They lack access to it and they don't know enough about it. And we can fix both both of those things through public policy.
1: So who's responsible uh, for addressing that? You know, is it parents, schools, government? Is it a concerted effort from all three or somewhere else that we should be looking?
2: Yes, it is a concerted effort from all all three. Um, You know, obviously the best place for any discussions like this is in the family Um, but what we know is that young people aren't getting enough information about medically accurate sex education and about access to contraception for example in schools in arkansas we have school many schools have school-based health clinics and the state's been great about um, expanding those over the years but there are more restrictions on how contraception can be handed out in the clinics than in other types of doctor's clinics. A good example of that is a teenager can get uh, birth control, hormonal birth control, without uh, parental permission in a, in a doctor's office, uh, but in a school-based health clinic, um, they can't. The states that have the lowest teen birth rates are much more open to ensuring that young people have access to contraception. In answer to your question, we all have a role in this, and, uh, you know, state government is all of us, and so we need to make sure that our state government addresses this issue in a realistic way.
1: When you say realistic ways for the government to address it, you know, what are those approaches? What needs to happen? What resources are available? And what kind of needs to be made more accessible?
2: Sure. Yeah. You know, we, we all know that abstinence is the most effective form of preventing teen pregnancy. Uh, but it also doesn't take into account uh, what we all know to be true, which is that some teenagers are going to be sexually active. Um, to deny that is to not live in policy reality. Um, so so because that is true, uh, we need to make sure that young people are armed with the right tools, and that is access to contraceptives and scientifically accurate sex education.
1: And when you say um, scientifically accurate sex education, can you break down that term and, and what that means?
2: Sure. Um, it means um, not just talking about abstinence. It means talking about um, how sex works. It means talking about... Um, how, pr- how pregnancy can be prevented and how that actually works in terms from um, you know, hormonal forms of birth control to uh, how, how, how the, the most effective ways that people can, can prevent pregnancy and what science has shown us about that. It sounds ob- it's probably too obvious to be called scientific, but uh, we're not teaching um, teenagers enough.
1: Are there specific requirements um, about sexual health that are required in Arkansas schools to be taught? And are there restrictions around it if it is taught?
2: Um, the, there are no, there's no mandatory requirement for sex education, one. And two, um, there are restrictions when it is taught. The re, one restriction is that abstinence be included as part of the uh, curriculum. But there's no requirement that information about uh, contraception be included in that, um, let alone access. And so we we have a we have a, a policy that's not based in reality. One that we want all all people who graduate from high school in Arkansas to have had some form of sex education. Um, and we and it denies the reality that many teenagers are going to be sexually active.
1: Yeah. Is that something that we see in in many other states too, or is that unique to Arkansas?
2: States that have high teen birth rates, yes, yeah. <laughs> The states that the states that have the lowest teen birth rates have uh, mandatory sex education and they have free access to the most effective forms of contraception. It's not rocket science. We can look to what has worked. And uh, what we're doing now, um, isn't lowering the teen birth rate as fast as we've seen other states do, and so that's why we continue to be last. So we, so, uh, we cite a couple of states that have had really effective programs, and one of them is Colorado, which had uh, one of the nation's highest teen birth rates in 2009, and now they have one of the nation's lowest teen birth rates, And what they've done is um, offered free access to long-acting, those long-acting reversible contraceptions, which are uh, the shorthand term for that is LARCs. So Colorado made sure that every teenager who wanted access to that form of contraception, the most effective form, had access to it. And they saw their teen birth rates really just plummet, and now they have one of the lowest uh, rates in the country.
1: And another thing that did stick out to me in the report was just the cost, what it costs the state for, um, you know, to deal with these teen births. And can you break down that cost versus the cost of prevention and implementing some of these preventative programs?
2: Yes. The most recent information we have was cited in legislation proposed in 2021, and it estimated that it costs $143 million annually uh, to the state that teen births uh, the total cost. And that includes everything from uh, Medicaid payments um, to more families uh, ha- needing access to programs like SNAP, food stamps, and uh, WIC. Though so when Colorado decided to concentrate on contraceptive access, they spent $23 million in a year and saw their teen birth rates plummet. So you can see easily how we could afford to do something like that by just using a
1: fraction
2: of the funding that we're using right now uh, to pay for deliveries and the costs to families.
1: And so I'm wondering, you know, it maybe seems like an obvious question, but, you know, why is teen pregnancy a problem? What are the risk factors for kids who get pregnant, uh, you know, whether that's physically, economically, emotionally?
2: Right. There's nothing inherently wrong with a young parent having a baby and, uh, you know, working as hard as they can to make that work. But we do know people who have babies in their teen years are um, much less likely to graduate from high school. They're much more likely to struggle to provide essential needs for their families. And for the young moms, their lives are at stake. They're much more likely to have uh, birth complications and for the babies themselves to be born at low birth weights and preterm. And so there are big health consequences, big economic consequences. And, you know, one of the most important things that we do at my organization is to work on policy to reduce child poverty, to reduce child poverty in Arkansas we need to reduce the teen birth rate because children who are uh, born to teen parents are much more likely to live in poverty.
1: And I'm also wondering um, how the overturning of Roe v. Wade and, you know, the state's abortion ban, how that will impact this teen birth rate or does it have an impact?
2: Yeah, we're, you know, we're concerned um, that our teen birth rate will go up even more um, in, in light of this ruling, because once the ruling was in place, uh, Arkansas's trigger law went into effect and we um, outlaw almost every abortion. And so um, we we know that that rate is, is going to go up and that we're going to have uh, more issues with uh, everything from uh, poverty to strains on our foster care system. And so we want to make sure that young people have every form of access that they need to prevent pregnancy in the first place.
0: That was Laura Kellums with Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families speaking with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth. Laura is my wife. Yes, I had nothing to do with the writing, interviewing, or editing of the story.
3: The Carnegie Public Library is celebrating the launch of the Eureka Springs Oral History Project Thursday, October 13th at 5.30 p.m. in the Library Garden. The event is free to the public and light refreshments will be served. 479-253-8754 or myeurekastory.org for more. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents We the People, the Radical Notion of Democracy, featuring the nation's founding documents in conversation with American art, including a rare original print of the U.S. Constitution, opening July 2nd. Free tickets at crystalbridges.org.
0: This is Ozarks at Large. Theater Square's production of Detroit 67 is opening tonight. Dominique Moriso's play was awarded the Edward M. Kennedy Prize for Drama and takes audiences into a city that is bristling with amazing music and heightened tension, as 1960s era policies clash with people's rights. Our setting is a family basement turned into an after-hours social spot. Mariso is a Detroit native and this work is part of a trilogy of plays about the city. It comes adorned with some of the great songs from Detroit when the city earned its nickname Hitsville USA. Yesterday, cast members Christopher Alexander Chiquique, who plays Sly, And Natasha Devon, who is Bunny, came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Natasha says she identifies with her role.
4: I am Bunny in my real life. Like, there's so many elements of me that is so close to this character. Um, She's like that fun, spunky aunt who has the best fashions and the greatest advice and knows the ins and outs of everything. And I think that... One, I am that <laughs> type of aunt in my family. And two, everybody has an aunt like that. Yeah. And so when you see elements of her on stage, I want people to say, oh, that is my aunt so-and-so. Oh, that's my, <laughs> my cousin so-and-so that, I, that, that is old enough to be my aunt. Um, so yeah, I just want to portray her in a way that regardless of race, I think everybody has an unbunny.
5: Yeah.
0: This script allows you to do so much, right? I mean, there is every emotion fathomable. Oh yeah. And sometimes it turns on a dime.
5: Yeah.
4: <laughs> that's <true>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's true.
5: Yeah, and honestly, I think Bunny has a lot to do with like, you know, a lot of the comedy, but then also turning, lightening up the mood when it's heavy, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I tell people, you know, in this show, you're gonna laugh. You're gonna cry. There's gonna be some romance moments. There's gonna be some some anger. You're gonna feel like a lot of the full gamut of emotions that you know the humans experience. So it's it's just a great. It was it was beautiful to read. I remember the first time I read it, it brought me to tears, and uh, then the first time we read it at the table. All of us were like,
6: "Oh
5: man, they really gotta do something about the air purity in this room because." Allergies.
0: Nineteen sixty-seven was fifty-five years ago, Mm -hmm. before either of you were born. Did you did you read up about nineteen sixty-seven about Detroit in that time? Was that something you wanted to do?
5: Oh yeah, definitely. And then and the at the beginning of this process when we were having our table reads, you know, Dexter, who's uh, our director, he's from. Detroit and so you know he gave us a lot of insight as to what Detroit was like you know during his upbringing and what you know what he'd learned from his elders and uh, things of that nature but yeah definitely did a lot of research into Detroit Um, you know talked to my Detroit friends you know listened to some Detroit music um, just kind of really saturating my mind with you know what was going on at that time and who was you know in the scene.
0: You mentioned Detroit music. Music I mean, there's music in this. There's
4: so oh, much yeah. good music in this oh, play. Yeah. Yes.
5: It's wonderful. I mean, I did not know how impactful Motown was for so long um, until we started this process.
4: Yeah, Motown, um, I think when you think of music and when you think of, like, R&B specifically, you think of Motown because it led for such a long time and even now still curates amazing artists, Um so I can only imagine what it was like to live um, in the home place of that and how that influences so much. And we watch music today and how music in the 60s and the 70s um, had a lot of content that was relating to love. Yeah. And we have a lot of music today that is um, relating to like a lot of violence and I've read articles and things like that of how um, they connect, how music is influencing the world we live in um, without us even realizing it. And so to go back to that time when it was so pure and so beautiful um, within this play is, is a lot of fun.
0: Motown, I mean, if you hear a classic Motown song, you know it's old, but it also sounds current.
4: Oh, it's so relevant. Yeah, the lyrics definitely. are timeless.
5: Most definitely, which which um, is a double-edged sword in, of sorts when you think about it, because it's like, oh, this this music is so relevant and so impactful and it speaks to your soul. But then also it's unfortunate that the same issues that were relevant 55 years ago are still relevant today.
0: Yeah, that's um, where I wanted to go next, is, yeah. I mean, yeah, the music is relevant, but there are things yeah. in Detroit 1967 that are things in... United States 2022.
5: Exactly. Um, And, and, you know, I think a lot of the themes that we talk about in this in this piece um, are still relevant today. Uh, There's a heavy, um, you know, police brutality and police relationship with the uh, African-American community that's spoken to in this part in this play. And that's just as prevalent today uh, as it was then, if not more, because, you know, in more recent years, you begin to see police activity. on the internet and and on our phones and um, on the news on a nightly basis, whereas that wasn't necessarily the case in 1967. So, yeah, it's just interesting, unfortunate um, that the music is so prevalent today um, or just as prevalent today as it was back then.
4: And I, as an activist um, approaching this script, I found it sad and so like interesting how our Detroit 67 is going to be our children's summer 2020. Yeah. And how events like this continue to happen on such a large scale. Um, and so when we were reading the script, I was like, wow, I wonder what playwright is gonna sit with summer twenty twenty and create that play um, to show what was happening um, and to show how it was affecting um, people within inside their homes, because that is something that yeah. is so relevant um, in this play. While the theme um, of that isn't the whole scope of the play, and it doesn't you know overtake it, um, because this play is really based in love. Yeah. But I I do wonder what that play in the future will look like when I can be in the audience watching some young actor and be like, well, actually, this is what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Do you
0: think telling a story like this, a production like this, can do anything to maybe not have to have a young playwright in 2040 writing the script that you're writing in 67 or 2020?
4: um one it, can only hope yeah yeah right in <laughs> like theory, just being honest yeah.
5: in theory that's that's you know what what we hope for because art does influence life uh and vice versa so we can you know hope that you know the right person sees this play or 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 you know reads the, the play and, and and is influenced in a way that can uh begin a domino effect that can change things for the better
0: you mentioned Dexter Singleton, as yes, the uh, yes. director uh, from Detroit. He's done two. He's directed two of my favorite plays that Theater Square's ever done. Oh, wow. The Royale and um, The Grand Entrance of Chad Deity. And with both of those, he, he made just tremendous use of sets, mm-hmm. both what there was and what there isn't. And I wonder what it's like to work with him, just in the sort of fundamentals of where you are on stage and how you... Mark and things like that, because his two previous productions here have just been yeah. fascinating to watch. Um, I'll let you go first.
4: Dexter is amazing. Yeah. Um, I had the privilege of working on the Royale with him. Um, I played Nina in that play, and just having the honor to come back and do this play, which is so close to his heart. Um, he'll hate that I'm sharing this one night after, <laughs> right? He's going to get mad. It's okay. Um we did our first run-through of the production, and he couldn't give us notes because he got so choked up and was crying. And if you know Dex, he's like a very, like, stoic, chill, stoic <laughs> person. You never can really read what's on his face. And they're like, actors, come out for notes. And he's just bawling. He's just like, I can't, I can't really talk to you right now.
5: <laughs> I'm going I'm to I'm lighten the blow. He wasn't bawling, but he was, you know. <laughs> He was emotional, and I, I, but I will say that he was, you know, I saw him sniffling and wiping tears for the last two scenes of the play during that run-through.
4: <laughs> exactly. I think Dex, working with Dexter as a director is so special because yeah. from my personal experience, he trusts the people that he casts. Yeah. And I also think he just outdoes himself with casting roles and characters. And I remember after the first read of this production – I was like, you outcast this play. Like, I can't hear these characters in any other voice anymore. And I've seen this play before, but now I can only hear the voices in this room. Like, nobody else can play these parts. Um, so yeah, he trusts his actors and the designers, and it's such an open experience. Um, sometimes you get a director that like over directs or doesn't direct at all, um, but with him. I think we all just feel very safe oh, yeah. under his direction. Most definitely,
5: and and like you said, Dexter is amazing, and he's a he's a visionary, and you can see it like throughout the rehearsal process. Like you'll see that his his brain is like just, but he's also like just playing scenes out in his brain and how he wants it to go. But he also gives us a lot of freedom to mm-hmm. collaborate with him if we have a feeling. You know, or an inclination about what we want to do or how we want a certain thing to go. We, you know, it's an open space to share and collaborate and like see what works best for the process. Um, I worked with him. Well, everyone in this cast has worked with Dexter uh, previously, and yeah. so he affords us a lot of trust to you know do what we want and and play with the characters because he knows how we work. He knows what we bring. Uh, To the stage, you know, just every time I have the opportunity to work with him, I'm always going to take it because that's how much trust I have in him as an artist and as a human being. Um, Yeah, I just I I can't praise him enough.
0: When you are and I know we're just at the beginning, but when you're done with a production where you're working with, you know, colleagues that you respect, a director you respect, uh, a script that means so much, what can it leave with you afterward as you
5: continue So, um, the cast, we were sitting around the first week that we were here, and we all went around talking about the best theater experience that we had, right? And I know for me, just, we haven't even gotten to the run yet, but just the way us as a company are communing with one another, I'm at the very least taking with me that this is the best Theater experience I've had, and it's completely unexpected. I did not expect that to be the case uh, when I came here, and um, but on top of that, I've just you know met so many amazing people, um, and the Theater Squared has just made it made us feel so comfortable, you know, in terms of just providing us with a space to create and to play, which is not always the case when you go to regional theater. Um, on top of that, I get to tell an amazing story um, that that needs to be told. and so there's like the pride of of being able to say that I did that.
4: Yeah. For me i I take away that this um, production and its company is... Uh, now my family. You know, I take away that these are people that I would work with again and again and people that after the production is over I'll text and check up on um, and vice versa and I wish them so well in their lives and their careers, um, which is uh, another tribute to to Dexter for um, working with amazing people. So I'm able to take away that I know more people that I love. (laughs) And also I I take a little bit of each character with me that I play, not in a crazy deranged way, but (laughs) (laughs) I do keep a little bit um, of each character that I play. And with each production that I do, I am gaining more and more confidence in my ability to deliver. And so those would be the things that I take
0: Natasha Devon and Christopher Alexander Chiquike are members of the cast of Detroit 67. That play is on stage beginning tonight at Theater Square in downtown Fayetteville. Our conversation took place yesterday at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Mercy Hospital, Northwest Arkansas, is hosting a pair of interview sessions tomorrow designed to remove barriers to employment. The hiring events are taking place during National Disability Employment Awareness Month. Ashley McCaslin, a recruiter with Mercy, says tomorrow's interviews on the Mercy NWA Hospital campus in Rogers are part of the system's greater diversity, equity, and inclusion mission.
7: We are calling it an all-access career event for individuals with disabilities who may have had barriers to employment or even getting to the interview stage of the application process.
0: McCaslin says the desire is to find the intersection where an applicant's passion and purpose meet.
7: Uh, For me the approach for individuals with disabilities as in the career sector is uh, when I came into recruitment I noticed that a lot of corporations, big small places would say that just because someone has a disability such as autism they may be great at a certain skill set and they were saying well they would only qualify for jobs that fit under this umbrella or this bubble. And what I've just found is interviewing and speaking to individuals is they are as diverse as the positions that we have with Mercy. Some may want those positions that don't have a lot of customer service or interaction. Others really enjoy speaking to the public or speaking to our patients and uh, being in those frontline roles. So being able to just match someone where their passion is, is one of my favorite things about my role with Mercy.
0: Interviews will be hosted in two separate 30-hour blocks tomorrow, beginning at 9 a.m. and 2 p.m. Appointments can be set up through careers.mercy.net.
7: And then they can actually sign up to participate. There's just a few questions. um, And then what I would do is reach out to them. Uh, We have two sessions, a 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., and a 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. session. We've scheduled them for an interview with one of our Mercy leaders or talent selection partners and uh, be able to provide accommodations. We are looking to make sure it's an accommodative interview as well as an environment for um, individuals of all abilities.
0: Ashley McCaslin says tomorrow's interviews will include people as diverse as the positions available within a large hospital system, And she says Mercy's continuing expansion in Northwest Arkansas means there are more employment opportunities than ever before.
7: Along with Mercy's recent announcement of their expansion in Northwest Arkansas, uh, we are going to have just such a wide range of positions that someone can potentially interview for. So we're really just looking forward to getting to know individuals in our community and looking to uh, find some of those great Mercy fits to join our team.
0: Ashley McCaslin is a recruiter with Mercy Hospital. We talked with her yesterday. This is Ozarks at Large. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences' new 28,000-square-foot Office of Community Health and Research is officially open In Springdale.
8: We are so excited that you guys are here. It's been an amazing day, an amazing journey.
0: After the customary giant scissors were used to cut a ribbon, the public was invited inside to see the new space and to browse among scores of area nonprofits, community partners of the UAMS Office of Community Health and Research, who had set up information tables. The office was established in 2012 to reduce health disparities and increase access to chronic disease prevention. Pearl McEalfish, the division director of community health and research, says the new location will allow the office to pull all its employees together.
8: And we've been further away from the communities that we serve, and so we're so excited to be in this great space because it will allow us to do our work closer to the community and serve more people. It also has spaces so that our community partners can have meetings and gather, and so it really represents our commitment to Northwest Arkansas for the past 10 years.
0: Crystal Langston, the Executive Director of Community Programs for UAMS Northwest Campus, says those partnerships strengthen the bond between community and UAMS.
6: A community partner to UAMS is someone who is willing to um, join them in the trenches to address public health. A community partner helps us adapt and meet the needs of the community, making sure that everything we do is culturally appropriate and is best um, well-received within that community as well. In
0: 2015, the office created the Center for Pacific Islander Health, the first center in the country to focus solely on Pacific Islander health issues through research, community programs, training, and policy. Pearl McElfish says there is a reason the office has both community and research in its title— She says one informs the other.
8: It's research done differently, and I hate to get too much in the weeds, but to describe it, when we think about doing a survey We actually take that survey, have our community partners read it. We translate into Spanish or Marshallese, have them edited again. We remove questions, we put in questions, all because of what they say. We ask about how much is an appropriate participant incentive. We, when we get the results back, we do YouTube videos and one-page flyers about those results. And then most importantly, how can that research translate into policy change? And we are often not the group making the policy change, that's often Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families or ACOM or someone else that's actually advocating for the policy change, but we want our research, we're committed to doing research that actually can be used for policy implementation. Another great example is Springdale school systems, Bentonville school systems, because of research that we did with them have implemented organizational level policies to transform their food system. So some are big policies at a state or national level, but just as impactful are the policies at the community level.
0: Just this week, the UAMS Office of Community Health and Research announced that a partnership with the Springdale School District has produced a five-year sustained reduction in sodium levels in school lunches in the district, even during the height of the pandemic. McKelfish says yesterday's official ribbon-cutting for the new facility represents a continued, dramatic evolution of the office.
8: We began um, about 11 years ago when Pete Kohler hired me, and it was me, a team of one. In about a year, it became a team of three or four. As um, you heard Julie say, then grew into a team of 10. Over the past years, we have grown into a team of more than 150 faculty member, researchers, staff, and then more than 100 community partners in Northwest Arkansas and 200 partners statewide.
0: Last year, the office's work with Marshallese Hispanic and Rural Areas helped UAMS earn the Spencer Foreman Award for Outstanding Engagement from the Association of American Medical Colleges.
3: Support for KUAF comes from the Museum of Native American History, located at 202 Southwest O Street in Bentonville. The museum offers walk-through 21,000 years of history with art from all over the Americas and has been voted in the top 10 history museums in the United States three years in a row. More available at monah.org. Walton Arts Center's 10x10 Arts Series presents Aquila Theater's take on Pride and Prejudice, Thursday, October 27th at 7 p.m. Adapted many times for the screen and stage, this production tells the classic tale of the Bennett sisters with a diverse cast and a modern twist. Tickets and information at waltonartscenter.org or 443-5600. Support for KUAF comes from the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal, now featuring wealth management and brokers, plus local business news from Northwest Arkansas. Subscriptions and information at 7250394 or nwa
0: This is Ozarks at Large. Legally Blonde the musical has been running dress rehearsal and teaching sessions at Walton Arts Center for many days in preparation for the launch of their national tour. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore went behind the scenes to talk to some of the cast and crew about launching a current day version of an empowering story.
9: Jeffrey it. Moss walks me through the Baumwalker Hall at Walton Arts Center to show off the production work preparing for the launch of the national tour of Legally Blonde, the musical. Oh,
10: wow. So we are literally dealing with audio,
9: video, electrics, stage management,
10: music, and the technique of, the, of music. It's live music. We're sweetening some of it. Uh, we have sound effects. That's, that's what we're doing. We're, we're blending all this together. Um, that's video up there.
9: Inside the hall, you see giant slabs of what is typically staging decks being used as makeshift desks, holding up an Apple store's worth of computers and gear that make this show happen. Jeffrey is the director of Legally Blonde, the musical, and he says a lot has changed since the original film came out in 2001, and even since the original musical version in 2007. He says he has some reliable sources to help bring it to the present time. I talk
10: to my children, I talk to my grandchildren, I let them talk to me a lot, and I, we spent a lot of time in the audition room listening to the people coming into the auditions, talking about themselves, talking about their feelings about Legally Blonde, about this story, where how it placed itself in the world, and that's, that's a lot of education, besides just living in the world as we're all living, and thinking about what's happened since that movie, what's happened to all of us, what's happened to us in the past five years, is a bit of an education to bring into the rehearsal room and try to place this play in the present time, the real present time.
9: Hannah Bonnet plays the lead role of Elle Woods in this production, and says one concrete example of that is the use of things from everyday life:
6: Instagram, TikTok, selfies, of course, and um, cell phones. But at the same time, you know, the story is different now. We've had the Me Too movement. We've had an absolute world shift from COVID to protests to etc. So we're bringing all of those things that you know culture supporting cultures and people supporting people because that's what everyone wants to see nowadays on the stage. You want to see real life represented in those people that you're watching.
9: Hannah says she got her start in theater after a short-lived career as a cheerleader.
6: All of my friends thought doing theater was more fun, and so I said, you know what, why don't I just join everybody? And as I started to do it, I realized, oh my God, I'm absolutely terrified to perform. Maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I shouldn't do this, but I'm pretty competitive, and being bad at something turned into uh, wanting to be really good at it. And so thankfully I've had lots of people who have helped cultivate my talents, and here I am.
9: What scared you about doing theater and and perhaps musical theater yeah. right?
6: I mean singing is such a vulnerable art form it's you know not always perfect you don't have to be perfect uh, when you tell a story especially one as important as this and I think something about that as a kid and stepping into myself was just a little spooky scary but I absolutely adore Reese Witherspoon. Reese if you're listening please come see us <laughs> um, and of course Laura Bell Bundy and I uh, It's an absolute honor. I'm thrilled to be here. I never thought I'd be in this position or playing this role, and that's what's kind of so great about it. I I get to bring me. I get to bring something different, something new age.
9: But for all the talk of change, director Jeffrey Moss says one thing has definitely stayed the same in this production.
10: At the bottom of this show, in the center of this show, is a very strong heartbeat. The sweetness of it, the charmingness of it, is very much, very important to us. Talk about comedy, real comedy is based on truth. That's what makes it funny. We're laughing at something that's truthful. My job as a director is to be the truth policeman, to make sure everything on that stage feels
9: truthful to the people in that story and the time the story is set in. The musical has been at Walton Arts Center in a teaching capacity, which is similar to a full run dress rehearsal in a professional theater. Jeffrey says the work he does takes on an adjacent role from being a director.
10: So I consider myself a magician and what I'm drawing on before I pull the curtain open and you see the trick is how we do the trick. You know when we saw somebody in half, don't tell anybody we actually don't saw them in half. We just don't want anybody to know that. And that's what we're doing in there. We're combining the elements of video Audio, lighting, music, live music, recorded music, and blending them together in a way to make visual excitement on the stage, to make tricks, to make tricks, to draw you in to the place I want you to look. Um, It's not a film, but in some ways this is like a film because I'm deciding where you should look and when you should look there. Don't look over there,
9: look over there. Hannah notes the cultural impact this role can have on all people. Do you feel empowered on the stage as you look out and maybe you see you know, young women who were seeing you and they see themselves in you. Is that a moment of empowerment from you when you're on the stage?
6: Of course it is. And, and not only women, but I hope one day that we can have people who are non-binary and who are even men, or maybe don't identify as women at all. Um, they also have the opportunities and the place to play this role because it is such a joy and it brings joy to so many people.
9: What is the hardest part about being El Woods?
6: <laughs> oh, where to begin? Where to begin? Um, it's a, a marathon. Truly, you don't stop. I barely leave the stage and I get to see everybody. And so the sing is really hard. I'm learning how to navigate my voice and take care of myself, especially while on the road. So, um, but it's a pleasure. I wouldn't want to do anything else.
9: You can see Legally Blonde the Musical, October 14th through the 16th at Walton Art Center. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore.
0: Tomorrow night, KUAF's limited-run podcast, The R Word, becomes a public discussion hosted at the Fayetteville Public Library. Jamar Tisby, author, speaker, former middle school teacher and principal, will be a virtual guest and discuss his books How to Fight Racism and The Color of Compromise. After Jamar Tisby's talk, there will be a 30-minute book discussion led by the host of the podcast, Lowell Taylor. Tisby and Taylor have spoken before, including on the third episode of The R Word. Here's an excerpt from that discussion. Jamar started the conversation with an introduction.
11: I am a black Christian who has learned the hard way about the enduring racism in some circles of white Christianity. Uh, I became a Christian in high school through the ministry of a white evangelical youth group, um, went to undergrad at the University of Notre Dame where I actually got exposed to something called reform theology. Then after I graduated, I became a teacher in the Teach for America program. That's how I got from the Midwest where I grew up down to the deep south in the Delta on the Arkansas side. So so we share a state here. And um, I came face to face with the crushing injustice of extreme concentrated generational poverty. Uh, Where I live in the Delta is one of the poorest counties in the entire nation. Um, the poverty rate is double the, the state average, which is already higher than the national average. Um, and all of the issues that go along with poverty uh, took on a human face because it came walking into my classroom on two legs uh, every day. So I learned about functional homelessness. And we had a student who um, had a roof over his head every night but didn't know which roof it was going to be any any particular night. Uh, He would stay with various relatives and friends of the family uh, depending on the situation. We could always tell when he had stayed with his grandmother and grandfather because he came in with a clean uniform, his homework done, he had a good night's sleep. We could tell when he had stayed the night with someone else because he was wearing the uniform from the day before or more. Uh, He hadn't done any of his homework and probably hadn't gotten much sleep the night before. It wasn't from a lack of care from the adults in his life. It was just the exigencies of, of, of their daily struggle for survival made it hard to take care of um, a young child. Uh, we also had you know students who came in every day, didn't have food. Their idea of um, breakfast was whatever they got at the gas station that morning, which was Chips or pickles or juice that had, you know, enormous amounts of sugar, nothing healthy. So we always had to have breakfast um, at the school just because you can't learn if you're hungry. Um, So all of those things. And I started asking, well, what does my faith have to do with this? What does my faith say to these issues of real material? poverty and injustice. And in the circles I'd been in, these evangelical and reform circles, they didn't speak explicitly to these topics very much, let alone along racial lines. So I went to seminary in Jackson, Mississippi at Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, Got a great education in some ways, but also a very difficult education in others as I started speaking out more publicly about race. Formed what became The Witness um, and uh, became a target because I was writing about these things, I was podcasting about these things, I was speaking about these things. And then everything, you know, this national conversation hits with Trayvon Martin, then Mike Brown, the Black Lives Matter movement, the 2016 presidential cycle, all of that. Um, But in the midst of it, I rediscovered my love for history, enrolled in the PhD program at the University of Mississippi, Wrote two books while uh, in grad school when I should have been writing my dissertation. Um, And uh, the first was The Color of Compromise, which talked about racism in the U.S. church throughout U.S. history. And the second one, uh, as you mentioned, was How to Fight Racism, which is an answer to that practical question. What do we do? Uh, Now, I spend most of my time writing at my newsletter, so uh, hopefully folks will understand this is the beginning of a conversation, and you can go to jamartisby.substack.com to keep up with all my latest writing and thoughts around race, religion, politics, justice, those kinds of things.
9: Jamar, thank you for sharing your story with us. Before we talk about The Witness Foundation, I do want to talk about The Color of Compromise. It's a book that changed me. Um, You open the book with a story of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Charles Morgan. Can you tell us the story and explain what it illustrates about the American church's complicity in racism?
11: So the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing was um, a racist terrorist attack that took place in 1963 in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, It rocked the nation because a white supremacist planted dynamite at a church. And when it exploded, it killed four uh, little Black girls, ages uh, 13 and 14, um, and injured many others, and of course traumatized an entire community. And it was one of these things that was so horrific that even by (laughs) US standards of racism, it was egregious. And so it pulled the nation's attention toward racism because it was such a shocking act. And yet, it shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone. Uh, So there was a, a white lawyer named Charles Morgan Jr. who spoke later that week and talked about how the entire white community, in particular, the Christian white community of Birmingham, was complicit in that attack. And he said to his listeners, his, his, his audience at this lunch, he said, uh, who did it? Who threw that bomb? And he said the answer should be we all did it. And what he was getting at was not that everybody had literally physically planted the dynamite, but that they'd had many, many opportunities to confront racism before and perhaps prevent a terrorist attack like this. And to the degree that people failed to act or were even complicit in other ways, like laughing at racist jokes or tolerating um, racism among family members and and colleagues, Uh, they held some sort of responsibility, not for what they did, but perhaps for what they refrained from doing. And so that's the idea of complicity, is that you don't have to be the one wearing the, the white robe and hood or lighting the cross on fire or tying the noose for lynching to to participate in a system that continually dehumanizes black people um the failure to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice um and in that way we should see we should all of us see ourselves as potentially being part of the solution, and deeply asking ourselves, if we're not acting, if we're not actively fighting against racism, in what ways are we supporting a racist system? Now, that makes a lot of people upset, (laughs) because the implications are vast. Because, A, we can unwittingly be supporting something that consciously we would oppose. Uh, most people you ask will be opposed to racism in any way, shape, or form. But when you um, suggest that a failure to act or to um, be more confrontational toward racism can, in fact, perpetuate the system, well, that that that's difficult. Um, it 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 implies that even without knowing it, we can be inflicting harm. But that's the case right if you think about a blind spot we get that language um you know it it, we can reference driving a car and there are blind spots in the car where you can't see or if you don't physically check you can't see other cars or objects that are in your blind spot and so you may change lanes let's say and unintentionally strike another car well you didn't mean to but there was still harm done um and the same thing can happen in our race relations it's not that we always mean to but there can be harm done even without intentionality which to me is not um you know a reason for further denial or trying to sort of defend oneself it's it's a reason in humility to say wow um i could be missing something how can i learn from others to, to get a bigger picture and be more active in the fight against racism. That's my hope.
0: Jamar Tisby is the author of How to Fight Racism in the Color of Compromise. He'll speak virtually tomorrow at the Fayetteville Public Library as an extension of our limited run podcast, The R Word. After, there will be a 30-minute book discussion with those in attendance led by podcast host Lowell Taylor. Tomorrow night's event, from 6 to 7.30 in the Ziegler Reception Room at the Fayetteville Public Library, free and open to the public.
3: Arkansas PBS will present Election 2022 Arkansas PBS Debates, October 17th through the 21st. The debate series will feature 24 candidates in nine races, including governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, secretary of state, U.S. Senate and U.S. congressional districts. Complete schedule and live streaming information at myarpbs.org elections. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation.
0: This is 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Lowell. Today's show is produced by Matthew Moore inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Contributors included Daniel Carruth and Matthew Moore. Will Taylor is the host of the KUAF podcast, The R Word. That podcast was produced by our general manager at KUAF, Lee Wood. Be sure to stay up to date with news from around our region every weekday morning at 5.30 and 7.30 with Daniel Carruth's newscast, Delivered from the Karen Taha News Studio. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Kyle Kellams.